Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest is Carmen Taglienti, Chief Data Officer and Data AI Portfolio Director for Insight. Insight is a leading IT solutions provider specializing in streamlining enterprise data infrastructure. Carmen returns to the program today to discuss high ROI use cases in generative AI models and how organizations can identify ones that match the core business value in their operations. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Carm, thanks so much for being back on the program. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. We're talking about identifying high ROI use cases for generative AI and how to achieve success quickly. I know there's a lot in this space that advertises speed, a lot of out of the box models. Something we like to tell everybody is that, you know, a model is a lifetime commitment. It might come out of the box, but, you know, those responsibilities in terms of the data cultivation and the governance last as long as you want that model to exist. But I'm wondering, you know, just from your perspective, how you see business leaders exploring how to recognize and quantify ROI value for key stakeholders. If they're starting from scratch in this process, where's the best place to start? Yeah, so I think the best place to start in is it's really critical because I think primarily what I think organizations are looking at for Gen AI today, or at least the way where they should be looking, is around productivity. And so productivity enhancement is, I'll call it a low-hanging low fruit model for many of these kinds of ROI discussions. And it's an easy place for organizations to lean in. So where I see organizations taking advantage of it are things like maybe coding is a good place, right? So a co-pilot is going to allow us to be able to code faster, be more productive as it relates to our development lifecycle or, or development processes, and also increasing our quality. But the other one, and I've, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but it really is just around content production. But it really just has to do with like, how can I identify those parts of the organization where there's a lot of manual processes or people are spending time finding things? Those are really good use cases. And the ROI is kind of easy in those cases because it's the anytime that you have manual processes or manual labor involved, you can immediately see benefit from an ROI perspective by reducing that. So you can now say, just from a time only perspective, reduce that time by a significant amount and then realize that value very quickly. So many organizations are focusing on that initially because those are easy ones. But then I think the other one is looking at greater operational efficiencies. And then the second one that I really like to look at is competitive advantage. So how can we see ROI by increasing market share, mind share, or even overall percentage of the market that might be part of our objective as an organization, and then looking for those kinds of efficiencies and then being able to measure them by using these kinds of generative technologies. Now, those might be a little bit more difficult to uncover because creating competitive advantage might require a number of different mm. approaches. But in general, those are the kinds of things I think that we can work on. But you can really get some quick wins, like I said, around the operational efficiency side, the, you know, taking things that have been manual and then mm. turning those into automation or maybe quicker return on your particular investment in the context of generative AI for content creation, et cetera, or even coding. 
Yeah, when you described the production level efficiencies in high ROI cases, it, it seemed like those were in like maybe a slightly smaller category from what we were talking about in terms of greater operational efficiency and competitive advantage in that, you know, the productive ROI use cases don't change the whole system and they don't change necessarily the whole organization. They change life for that one individual subject matter expert who has that task. They feel that pain point. And without that pain point, they are cooking with gas. So you might see some system level change at that with everybody working at their highest capacity with perhaps their most annoying task or, or handicap now removed from the system thanks to greater technology. But I want to dive into what you were talking about in terms of greater operational efficiency, because it seems like that's the next level up. Like once everybody has that change, you know, you'll have a system change where everybody's operating at a higher efficiency and then that can turn into a competitive ad advantage. Do I have those layers right in terms of just where to get started? It'll, it'll start in terms of productional changes. It'll grow to uh, greater operational efficiency as everybody on the whole team, you know, is equipped with these technologies. They don't have those same handicaps. And then if you're if you're doing that and no one else is, that's a competitive advantage. So it's almost yeah, I just want to put a finer point on that on that layer. Yeah, that's a really good observation, because I do think while I don't typically correlate the two, the way that you're describing it is sure. absolutely true. Right. Because now instead of me focusing, let's say my day job is to basically produce you know, content and it takes me forever to do it, I don't have time to think about ways to be innovative within the organization. And my you know, NPS score for employee satisfaction is relatively low. So why am I going to be creative in terms of my job? But I think you're right. I think it moves from operational efficiencies to competitive advantage because now I can focus on doing things that are more innovative, doing things that are more creative and can help to drive the innovation within my organization for competitive advantage. So it, absolutely. And, you know, even from a nuts and bolts perspective, operational efficiencies mean that we can do things faster by definition so that all of a sudden now, maybe that is competitive advantage in and of itself, not so much the creativity side of competitive mm -hmm. advantage, but certainly the, the ability to produce more faster, for example, that can get us there as well. But I, yeah, I wasn't thinking of the other, the other point you were making, but it's a great one because I think if you can free up your employees that really know the most about what's going on to be innovative, that's an awesome perspective, right? So you can actually right. use that to drive your business forward. And just bringing in the larger context that we built in from the last episode, if you have those capabilities to give that, uh, to innovate someone's job enough to the point where they have that free time to get innovative, they also probably have the space because you've built in the infrastructure to the back end in terms of the data, everything we were talking about in the last episode about having a safe place to experiment. They have a place to go with that free time to be innovative and exercise, you know, that imagination in a place where there won't be drastic consequences, at least if they're wrong. And and I think that that's a, a really positive environment, at least for business innovation. But just in terms of that scale, and I know I'm putting a, a kind of a loose spectrum on everything we talked about just uh, for, you know, that surface level productivity, where it levels up into greater operational efficiency. And then when that that moves up in, in, into competitive advantage, I'm really interested in how it works in terms of scaling that value realization for enterprise-wide business transformation. Now, ostensibly, these things aren't happening out of the blue. They're very much part of the plan. They're part of the many centers of excellence that we, we talked about in the last episode. They're a part of the AI adoption teams in terms of goals. But in just maybe even in terms of realizing those 
business goals or realizing business value that you might not have had at the offset. What are best strategies in your mind in terms of organizations being able to realize that that value, even if it's not what they had planned on in their hypothesis when they started this journey and building that out into an enterprise wide business operation? Yeah, so it's it's that's a fascinating perspective. And and I sort of liken it to the innovation cycle. You know, so when you when you start the innovation cycle, you come up with a whole bunch of ideas and then you try them, try them, try them. And then eventually something makes it through or crosses the chasm, if you want to use that metaphor. But then it mm-hmm. turns into something that you can scale or produce. Same thing is true, I think, in this particular context. So it's like we can identify a lot of opportunities for, say, efficiency within the organization and then use Gen AI solutions to be able to allow us to be able to get there. But then ultimately, we want to test them, validate them, demonstrate the ROI. And then once we're able to do that, then we can scale it. So that's when we can start this sort of value realization process where we say, okay, if we determine that, say, marketing content being produced by a Gen AI solution works really well because it can do a good job, we can give it the right kinds of information, we can generate the content, and then we can even automate that. Now we can move it into the scale mode or the scale motion. So now we can say we can grow it within that particular subject area, we can release it into production and start to realize value. Whereas initially we were just sort of creating value by saying the approach works, it supports our hypothesis of generating value, but we haven't actually realized that value yet until we move it into production. And then we can also sort of work on this concept of exposing it to a broader area. So what are the other parts of the organization where we can do the same kind of thing. So take that pattern and move it into whatever, just call it, you know, legal or sales, yeah. sales content production, or even, you know, legal contract generation, same strategy. We can also apply it there and move faster because it's the same pattern, only we're applying it into other domains. And again, taking investments in value creation and turning it into value realization by really moving it into a production environment, if you will. And then the other part of it, too, is I know you didn't ask this question, but we were talking about yeah. more of the, I'll call it qualitative aspects of how to realize value. But mostly organizations realize that by financial metrics. And this is true here, and it's no different. It is going to be the financial metric that, at the end of the day, right? Am I saving money? Am I producing more money? Et cetera, et cetera. So those are also things not to forget as we go through this process, but they are a key part of it. And they all do correlate, um, which is really interesting. So I can make my employees happier, but I'm also saving money or making money. And that's really the key. Yeah. And I I know as we've been kind of talking about kind of the more extreme scenarios or or what might need the most infrastructure, we almost kind of lose range about how kind of down to earth and practical these use cases can be. So I'd love to jump into the stories that you have from Insight. I think in particular, this one that, that you guys sent me about the recommendation engine for the tech manufacturer, I think this is really telling, especially because kind of the scale and just the implementation here is just so simple, you know, in terms of uh, that recommendation engine. But I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a look under the hood here to see what's really going on. And, and maybe we can preface that with everything we've been talking about in terms of how do you want to scale, you know, a small beachhead into something organization wide? Yeah, it's a. And that's a great example, certainly in the historically, and I'll go back in time, not that long ago, but when we wrote sort of classical machine learning algorithms that do recommendation engines, you know, we would basically train on a set of historical data that would allow us to say, well, the buying patterns may have shown that certain kinds of products would be recommended to an organization. 
Gen AI is a slightly different model because now what's happening is that it it really is just it's taking in all of the specific characteristics maybe of products and then looking for more of a it's not esoteric necessarily but it is basically saying based off of the preferences which I can understand through the language model I can make a recommendation that aligns best to the description of a particular set of products that might be available so we've been using it in the context for example of recommending alternative parts manufacturers looking for a particular set of is trying to create a bomb for a particular product build out and maybe one of those parts doesn't exist. So what's a good alternative part? Well, not only can you say, look at maybe what kinds of parts were recommended in the past, which is one way to do it, but here I don't even have to do that anymore. So now I can say, based off of that parts descriptions, now I can search for or look for a part that is similar in feature characteristics, which are broader than just saying this was a historically recommended part. So it's an amazing concept and capability that we can use moving forward because of the language model concept, um, because we're now using language descriptions to be able to do the recommendations versus just historical knowledge. And so I think it's a huge evolution in terms of the way that we think about even simple problems like that. Yeah. And I know this is indicative of the manufacturing space, but just the employee focus of this function, I think, should give everybody, regardless of industry or sector, a little bit of pause here and maybe think of what are the many ways that their employees' lives could be improved, their work lives. I, I, I Maybe I should specify. Right. I can't, can't account for what's going on at home. But just in terms of you know their daily work, how much it might be improved by putting these tools in, in their hands rather than always thinking of you know, necessarily, you know, what's what's the technology that we can invest in that'll be ultimately customer facing or always looking at business value in, in, in those terms? Well, definitely from the perspective of sort of making your job easier, but also yeah. accelerates that time to decision, I think, for the employee or even the customer, the consumer, ultimately. I mean, I think we're not too far away from this, you know, just sort of unleashing all of these capabilities, you know, letting the horse out of the barn, so to speak. Yeah. But it's more of the, in some cases, we want to make sure that before I release this into a production environment and automate it, I want to make sure that at least I'm getting the kinds of responses that I expect. But it's sort of a, again, for the employee, it's sort of faster. It's like if, if I'm validating, say, the response versus creating the response, then it, it makes my life a little bit simpler. So instead of searching, for example, for an alternative part or you know searching for the recommended part, I can use Gen AI to help me identify a set of alternatives and then just validate that those are the correct alternatives because I may know what kinds of things to look for and I can easily determine whether or not it's a yes or no versus a I have to do all the searching and I have to do all the collection and I have to look for specific right. part or characteristics, etc. So yeah, so the employee satisfaction goes way up because now it's a matter of, yep, this works. I think I know what the criteria is. So I'm the subject matter expert. I've figured out what needs to go on. I can take advantage of my experience and the value I can provide to the organization without having to do these mundane tasks. And then eventually maybe we even just automate it and now it becomes even faster. So then I move on to other things so that I learn additional behaviors that I can train the model with in the future. That's a very positive thing for any um, employee within any organization so that you can now start to grow your own knowledge and your own impact on the organization. Not only that, but just in terms of how you'd automate this for the future, and I know I keep harping on this, but I think it's a really great example just of like the simple recommendation engine, if it works, satisfies the leveling up of productivity. You know, they can just 
find the pieces that they need faster. But where you're talking about automation, that's taking it to the next level in terms of greater operational efficiency and what could turn into a competitive advantage for that company. Also, I I think this is a really great way of looking at it in terms of like, yes, if you solve the immediate problem, you'll have greater efficiency, but you also have the basis for an entire automated procurement system now that you've at least fixed that pain point, which I think is a really great way of of looking at ROI AI use cases. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I think over time, some of these things were possible before. Could we integrate these systems together? Could we automate them? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But this Gen AI movement, if you will, is a trigger for organizations to focus on mm-hmm. it again. So it's it's starting to move us now more toward this if I can get that answer fast enough, and if I can really enhance the experience for the organization and create operational efficiencies, then I, I should invest in automation because it allows me to be able to move faster. So I think it's not so much that it is true that Gen AI can actually enable automation because it can actually write the scripts for you, for example, right. that can produce the automation. But I think organizations are more aligned or akin to going with these kinds of strategies because of the fact that they can move so fast. They can actually get mm-hmm. to the right answer fast enough where I don't have to wait for Matt's going to take six hours to be able to determine what the answer should be. And then all of a sudden when he's done, then we're going to be able to kick a workflow. And it's like, well, that's not very automatable. But because, yeah. because of the speed and efficiency, now I can automate it and really move at the speed of business, for example. And that's yeah. just a complete you know, transformative characteristic of these capabilities and it leverages existing automation. It doesn't necessarily create existing automation, but it leverages it and allows us to be able to move faster. Right, right. And just just that overall difference between fixing a pain point and making a tool that can become the heart of your core business value. I, I'd love to turn to the convenience store security camera client story that you guys have in terms of a, a high ROI use case. But just because, especially for retail, this is something I know I, I talk to retail leaders all the time about the challenges of procuring, you know, physical data, whether it's through cameras or or, or another format, you know, computer vision, et cetera. It is just such a pain. It's gotten a lot easier in the last few years with, with a lot of new updates in real-time data and computer vision. But I know this is something that uh, a lot of retailers are looking at just in terms of how do we get all the insights that we can. And something I appreciate about the use case in, in terms of the literature that you guys sent me beforehand is that it really seems as though there there what it was the ambition here was just to take the physical data and and see what insights they could get just from the retail sales floor rather than, oh, we're going into this. We just want to make sure, you know, what are the surface level pain points? We're trying to decrease shoplifting or something or, you know, making sure employees are, are doing the right things at the at the right time or not taking out of the cashier's desk. This is a lot more in depth and this is a lot more open minded. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit maybe about the ideation phase and maybe what the business leader side of the table w- was thinking they would get out of this use case and then maybe what they did right and and um in that case you you could sort of hit on a few of these major topics most of the use cases really focus on well there are two broad categories i think theft is one clearly that you know uh retail stores are interested in because you know when you think about the uh business opportunity well theft is a big part of what they have to deal with they have to write off theft within their retail stores and they don't want to do that so that's a big pain point the other one is is really just 
uh, I'll call it the experience within the store. So are you driving them to the right location to be able to sell the right kinds of things? So you're sort of monitoring movement um, within the store. And then inventory is another big one. So I, I said two, but I had three. And that, that's, sure. that's the other one where it's sort of, you know, classic object detection. Are we able to keep stuff stocked so that people can, you know, if they want to go buy it or they're at the shelf location because, you know, the vendors actually put things on particular shelves and they pay for that shelf space within just about any organization or retail store. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, we were really interested in helping businesses to address, generally speaking. So the camera actually provides a lot of good knowledge or visibility into what is happening. So some of the partners that we work with that produce software that runs with on these on these cameras is around people analytics. And the humans are really what we're tracking at the end of the day, right? The humans are mm -hmm. the ones that are taking things. The humans are the ones that are buying things. They're the ones that we want to be able to monitor, to upsell to them when they're in the store. So when you take people analytics and put it on top of this camera integration, you now can start to create these really interesting solutions to problems. And so now we can start to say things like, let's make some recommendations on what to do in particular types of situations. So for example, if somebody's stealing something, it's great to see that they're, they're stealing something. Maybe it's in an area where, you know, you can take some additional intelligence where it's like, let's just say that, you know, it's a very, you know, rough part of, yeah. of the, you know, rough part of the city and you don't want to put the employee in danger. So you might make some recommendations on what to do if you see somebody stealing something. You know, maybe it's to be like, don't do anything, just let them go. That's fine. You don't want to put the employee sure. in danger. But, you know, or maybe in other situations, it could be maybe what we're going to do in the future is maybe move the location of it, put it someplace behind a wall. Mm -hmm. And we have actually done stuff like that. So, you know, just an example, let's just say things like beer, for example, within, yeah. a, within a convenience store. Well, people steal beer all the time. So what do you do about it? So you can you know, observe this behavior and then you can take action. But the action in this particular case is, you know, put it behind whatever a locked door or make them pay for it first or, or right. stuff like that. So you can start to reduce some of these these kinds of issues to address the problem that, you know, the particular retailer might be struggling with. But all of it is it's all based off of the analytics that we're getting from the camera is also based off of the behavior that we're able to observe by using the footage and then integrating it into the other systems where we're getting more data. So at the end of the day, when you take all of this together, it's really an intelligence-based solution where we're performing the analytics, we're trying to identify what the expected outcome is for these retailers, and then Eventually, we want to get to the point where can we be proactive as it relates to some of these? And I think in a lot of ways, we're there in terms of recommending things that can be done when it is real time. And in other cases, it's more, I'll call it right. offline, where we say, let's change the organization of the store. Let's change the strategies. But it's yeah. it's really becoming a rich area related to you know, retail, or you can even do this in manufacturing, any kind of organization that has any kind of inventory, you can imagine that you can apply these solutions there as well. Yes, yes. I know there's also a use case involving a food processing plant in That's compliance. Right. And I know from at least, you know, all of our friends in retail, they, they have a lot in common with our other friends in manufacturing, just in terms of the challenges of being able to, you know, really get all the data off the factory floor and make, making sure that, you know, employees are doing things the right way, not just vis-a-vis -vis compliance, but also vis-a-vis 
you know, maximum productivity, making sure that they're doing everything on time so that there's no unplanned downtime. Tell me a little bit about that use case and the ways that you're deploying AI models to guarantee compliance in a manufacturing context. Yeah. So the so in that particular case, this challenge was interesting because object detection is relatively simple to do. So if, if I were to say, you know, wanted to count the number of you know items within a particular on a shop floor, that's pretty easy to do. We can do that. You know, there are simple algorithms that allow us to do that. If I'm interested, though, in more of a, a time series problem where I wanted to be able to say, ensure that a um, particular individual was performing the operations they were expected to perform in a compliant way or in a sequence that was expected, now I'm looking at a time based problem. So, first they are to pick up an object, then they're supposed to maybe, you know, do something with that object, then they maybe need to maybe sanitize the object, and then they have to go back and maybe put it back on the production line and uh, as part mm -hmm. of a sequence. With this kind of streaming analytics model by using AI algorithms along with object detection, now I can define sequence of events. So, now I can say within a particular mm -hmm. time window, did these activities occur? And then I can start to determine. So integrate it with the AI that's able to determine, are they doing the things? And then build on top of it the temporal sequences. I can now say, there's a compliance thing right from the get-go. So now I can say, if they did it within a particular time window, or they put the objects back, or they took the objects, or they sanitized the object, I can see all of that now in an automated way. And then I, on top of it, I can even do things like, I can raise an alert. So now all of a sudden I can say, you didn't do yeah. what you're supposed to do. I raised an alert. Now let's just pretend that this is, you know, maybe it's produce, for example, and you're handling mm -hmm. produce. You didn't wash the heads of lettuce. And, you know, maybe we have to do that before, you know, something like salmonella, say, gets into the head of lettuce. And, and now all of a sudden we can contaminate the entire the food source. You've probably seen examples of this where, you know, salmonella got into, you know, head of lettuce and then you had to destroy an entire, you know, right. geographical areas, you know, set of produce. So th that's a big problem. That's a big waste. And so this is no different. So these kinds of compliance problems, you can say, now I can identify exactly where that was. I can find the compliance problem and I can isolate it. I can save a ton of money by doing it. And so these are the kinds of things that we've done before. And food processing plant was the example I was going to give. It happened to be a meat processing plant. I didn't want to describe that in too much detail just because of sure. the, the, uh, the nature of, of what might be happening there. Of course. But in general, you can imagine that that would be a particular issue. I'm a big fan of meat. That's 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 really when when they come for the when they come for the meat, I'm I'm going to be in big trouble in terms of my diet. So there's there's nothing you could have described there that that might have unappetized me as much as Mark Twain has had ugly things to say about sausage factories. There you go. All that said, just one last thing before wrapping up. This example seems like it's taking multiple source of data just as compared to the last two use cases we cited. You know, the retail one seemed really dependent on security data, video footage. Before that, we were talking about recommendation engines, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems like this is taking visual data and also sensorial data in order to ensure visual data of the factory floor to make sure that, you know, the employees are doing the things at the right time and it's and it's visible. But I imagine that would also involve sensorial data from the machines to make sure that, you know, whatever operation they implemented, no matter how far away the camera is, they did it the right way as far as the machine's sensors go in the close-up. Yeah, it. we were using some limited information from the sensors as well, but mostly it was camera-based. But sure. in general, it's okay. a good point because 
Yes, you can definitely have sort of multi-input in certainly in these kinds of yeah. things. And you can also increase efficiencies because when you think about, you can obscure the camera angle, for example, the cameras may go down. Sure. So I think having sort of, I'll call it a multi-input model does make things more effective. So it's a good point because I think in a lot of ways, you have to anticipate the fact that maybe the camera angle is obscured, so we can't quite you know, determine compliance. So how do we deal with those kinds of things? Because it's really nice to, we were talking about things like proof of concept. Concept's wonderful. Mm -hmm. You can get it to work, but does it work in a scalable production way? And that's where you sort of get into this. Do we have redundancy? Do we have backups? Do we have alternative mechanisms to be able to allow us to be able to move forward? And sometimes it is about having multiple sensors in order to be able to triangulate, but also increase our confidence, especially in Mm -hmm. critical situations where, you know, maybe it is a, you know, and I'll change the topic a little bit, but, you know, if it's something that might be related to, you know, loss of life or something that might be important, then you definitely want to triangulate across multiple sensor inputs before you make these kinds of decisions. And of course, AI is really good at that. It allows us to be able to do that in an effective way, to be able to say that I can use different sensors and I can I can cross-correlate in order to be able to determine whether or not I have confidence in a decision that might need to be made. Absolutely. It also speaks to the data governance considerations that you want going into a project like this and vis-a-vis what are the business goals. Nice if you can keep it to a, you know, a small beachhead use case that only involves cameras or that only involves kind of like, you know, one source of data. But that probably needs to be a consideration from the beginning, especially if you're going to be dealing in multiple forms of data. That might make things more complicated just because it's simple doesn't mean it's effective or high high ROI, of course. And that's just another part of the conversation. Uh, Carm, thank you so much for being on the show and showing us how to have these conversations. I think it's really illuminating. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode with Carm, as he likes to be called amongst friends, don't forget to check out our first episode with Carm that premiered on August 30th, diving into how to operationalize generative AI models to increase business value. We'll also have Carmen back on the program in October to talk about the future of AI. We do our best to look about half decade out and see what life will be like across workflows, across industries, thanks to these very powerful new technologies. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.